morning, church. Morning, everyone. Great. Can, can you hear me very well today? Wonderful. It's lovely to see everyone here today. Um, and if this is your first time with us today, um, you're very welcome here. Um, we've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, for the past few weeks, and we've settled on Ephesians chapter 2. And last week, Tom was very... Um, very gracious and, and very helpful in bringing to us um, the beautiful ark, one of the most uh, beautiful passages in the entirety of Scripture. Uh, he talks about um, last week how we were dead in our trespasses, and then we were raised and made alive in Christ. And now we've been saved by grace through faith for good works that God has prepared for us since before the time, uh, before the world was created. So there's this wonderful ark that um, we see in the, in the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to um, carry on looking in Ephesians chapter 2 from 11 to 19. And there's a similar arc also that is drawn here. It's an arc um, that is slightly different from what we heard yesterday, or last week rather, but it, it has some similarities. It's the arc of uh, people at war and a people that come to peace. And this is the arc that we're going to be talking about today. So let's read um, from Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, for you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word is living, and your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, Lord, that as this word comes, Lord, that it will pierce our hearts that it might do the work that you want it to do in us, that we might be your people, and that we might reflect your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, church, so this morning we are looking at the, a group of people that Paul um, is writing to. And I'm going to ask a question before I start. Who here um, comes from a, a non-Jewish heritage? I want to see a show of hands. I'm actually surprised. There's quite some few people put their hands down. So um, like we might have a few Jews in our midst today. But it looks like most of us in this room here are um, of non-Jewish heritage. Um, this is important for the passage that I'm about to read. So far, Paul has addressed the Ephesian church as um, in, 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 the, in, in the books, in the chapters that we read previously, he's referred to them as saints. And we see the word saints used about three times. And we, we understand that the church in Ephesus was merely a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. But Paul refers to them as saints. Until we get to this passage here, where he basically says, Therefore remember that 
at one time, you Gentiles. Now, that word Gentile might sound um, to us, the 21st century men, as a, an easy word. But in, in reality, in the context it's used, it's a very loaded word. And it's not, a, it's not a, a nice word, really. Because the word Gentile is a synonym for pagan or heathen, for uh, non-Israelite people. There's the, there's the word that comes from the Hebrew word goyim, which refers to non-Israelite nations. The word Gentile can also be trans, translated from another Hebrew word known as nokri, which means stranger. And so when Paul speaks to them here, and he uses the word Gentile, he's saying that you are strangers. You are non-Jewish, but you are pagan, heathen people. And there is something about the Gentile world that the Jews are very careful about. The Jews do not mix with Gentiles. They make it very, very clear all through their history. They don't mix with Gentiles. They don't like to go into Gentile homes. They don't like to eat food with Gentiles. They don't like to be in the same space as Gentiles. The Jews went as far as to make sure that Gentiles, when they approached the temple in Jerusalem, there were signs on the walls and there were physical barriers saying that you can't pass beyond this place as a Gentile because if you do, you will be killed. So there's something very hostile about being a Gentile from the perspective of a Jew. You know, Gentiles are seen as unclean, far away from God. And in verse 12, Paul says, remember Remember that at one time you were separated. Separated from what? He describes it in, in three pictures, in three ways. He says that remember that you were one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. And first we see that Gentiles were separated from Christ. Now, Christ, we use the word Christ a lot. Sometimes people use it as a swear word. But the word Christ is a Greek word that derives from the Hebrew word known as Messiah. Now, Messiah means the anointed one, the chosen one. Now, the Jews have had a vision of Messiah from the very beginning. Now, in the, in, in the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, we first see this Messiah alluded to when man sinned and fell and rebelled against God. And God said, the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. And we'll have victory over the serpent, the serpent meaning Satan. And this is the first time we see the, the Jewish mind understand someone is coming in the future that will have ultimate victory over the serpent. And we see, we see the Messiah mentioned in the prayers of, of Jacob when he's about to pass away. And he has all his sons gathered. And he prays to all of them and he gets to Judah, his fourth son. And then he mentions a figure, someone that comes out of Judah. And we see this prophecy about Messiah. And we see the prophecy about Messiah in, 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 in the book, uh, I believe in the book of Numbers, where you have uh, the, the prophet Balaam, who was sent to place a curse on the children of Israel. And he, he basically places a blessing on them instead. And then we see him make this prophecy about a star that comes out of Israel, the Messiah. And so we see that the Jewish people have had it in their mind all this time. We have one that is to come, a Messiah. They had this connection. There is one that will, will, will bring all things and restore all things back to its, its glory, the glory that God had intended it to be. But we Gentiles had no such expectation. The Gentiles had no future Messiah to come. This is what it means when it says, you were separated from the Messiah. The second separation, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
Now, the Commonwealth, people tend to think um, Commonwealth in terms of the British Commonwealth, but I don't find that very helpful because the Commonwealth actually means nation, state. I think the Americans get it right here when you sometimes they'll come up and say, we in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which basically means we in the state of Virginia. Commonwealth basically means a nation. It says that we were separated from the Commonwealth of Israel. What does the Commonwealth, what does a state do? It bestows on the citizens rights and privileges. Certain access that you have, that's why you have your passport. Certain things that you, you have access to that people that don't come from that state do not have access to. And we see the children of Israel, they had access to come to God and worship that was laid out in, 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 in systems that were, was given by Moses. They had the Mosaic laws. They had all these things laid out for them so they could come and worship God. The part of the world I come from in, in Nigeria, we, we worship God every day of the year except for one day of the year. But all those gods we worship, not even a true God. But you see, the children of Israel, they had a system. As limited as that system was, they still had a system to worship the one true Lord God, creator of the heaven and earth. We Gentiles didn't have that kind of privilege. We're separated, alienated from that. Then the third type of uh, separation says, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Emphasis on the plural covenants of promise. You have the Abrahamic covenants, which you see in Genesis 12.3. You have the Mosaic covenants, which uh, came when Moses brought the law. And we see that in Exodus 19.5-6. Then you have the Davidic covenants, where God says to David, when David had in his heart to, to build a temple for God, God said, because you had it in your heart to do this, there's going to be one that comes through your line. And there will be an eternal kingdom that will come through that person. That's another prophecy of, of the Messiah. This is the covenants that the, the children of Israel had. And then you have the promises, the promises to restore the earth and to restore the nations. Isaiah 11, 6 to 10, Isaiah 51, 1 to 5. We see that the nations will come back to God. We see that they will, you know, the, 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 the carnivore and the herbivore will both eat grass together. There won't be killing. There won't be violence. There will be a restoration. They had this covenant. We Gentiles had no such expectation. These three things are, are what, what Paul is pointing at, that you were cut off from this. You are a people that had no king, you had no citizenship, and you had no promise. That's why it says you were without hope in the world. And we see these words come up again and again, separated, aliens, twice repeated, strangers, twice repeated, far off, twice repeated, hostility, dividing wall. There is something here that speaks about tension, speaks about separation. It's not the kind of separation that we have when, say, my wife is at work and I'm also at work. We are physically separated. But we're talking about a hostile type of separation, type of separation that you see when a man and a woman are going through divorce, the type of separation you see when people are literally shooting bullets at each other, that type of hostility. That's what we're talking about here. But this hostility is first and foremost, and this, this separation is first and foremost between us and God. It's not just, it, it starts between us and God. We see that the Greeks regard the, the non-Greeks as barbarians. They refer to the Persians as barbarians. We see the Jews refer to the non-Jews as Gentiles. And the colonial masters refer to their subjects as savages. The Rwanda Hutus refer to the Tutsis as cockroaches. And you see this perpetual state of war with God, 
and within ourselves, amongst ourselves. And even the Jews, the Jews that had all these things, that had these promises, that had this heritage, that had this access, we see that even they don't escape from this war. We see the northern kingdom of Israel separate from the southern kingdom of Israel after the death of King Solomon. We see that the northern kingdom gets repopulated by people that are Jews and non-Jews, and they become this new group of people called the Samaritans. And we see this rivalry all the way through the stories of Jesus where the Samaritans and the Jews are at each other's neck. Even they do not escape this war. There's something about war that screams to us, something is not right. No one looks at a war zone and goes, oh, that, looks, that looks just about right. You look at a war zone and, you, and you, so your heart rends. You see it in, 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 the, in the faces of, of children that are malnourished. You see it in the devastated landscape. You see it in the barbed wives. You see it in the maimed body. You see it in the hatred that transcends generations. Oh, your father took land from my father, so I hate you with every fiber of my being, that if you walk past the front door of my house, I will kill you. That is what we see. Something is not right. The British novelist Margaret Drabble refers to the 20th century as a beastly century. Why? Because the 20th century, a period of 100 years, claimed 231 million lives that came out due to that people that died due to wars or, or conflict or human decisions. And this isn't just a, a Christian understanding that something is off of the world. You don't have to be a Christian to realize that our world is broken. We've seen uh, for the past two years issues around you know, uh, you know, racial justice and, 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 and issues around human rights around the world. Even a lot of these protests were led by people that were not Christians. They realize something is off. But you see, this state of war did not start, it didn't start at the, at the concentration camps of Auschwitz. This, they didn't start during the trans-Saharan slave trade or the transatlantic slave trade. Or they didn't start at the, in the wars of antiquity. This, this war, this state of war began at the garden when man turned his back against God. And we see just after man exits the garden that a brother takes a weapon and then kills his own brother. And they were, they were from the same family. I'm not even talking different ethnicities here. Now, the, the philosophers of our age, the atheistic philosophers of our age, have said that the state of war we find ourselves in is because there is no God. That the chaos is evidence that there is no God. Many Jews went through the fires of Auschwitz, and they came out on the other end and said, the fact that we went through that and there was no deliverance is proof and evidence that there is no God. So many of them turned away and, and became sort of hardened and said, no, we, we, we reject this idea that there is a God. But the truth, however, is that we are in a state of war because there is a God, but we have collectively turned our backs against him. We rejected him. It says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brothers, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has sinned, cannot love God who he has not sinned. And so we see here that if we don't love God, then how can we love the humans that he has made? And this is at the very heart of our problem. There's an estrangement between us and God. And that leads to the estrangement we see across the world today. So how do we restore peace? How do we get to the state of peace? Now we agree that 
The world is correcting this assessment that something is broken. Something is, is painfully wrong. But what we see time and time again is that the solutions of the world from, from the time we've had written history, the solutions of the world has been on one set of failure on another set of failure. We've had great men that have arisen in the past to unite the world behind their vision. We've had people like Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, people like Napoleon, people like Hitler. We've had a vision of how can I, how can I sort of unify the world and, and, and order the world. And the results of their work is what? Millions dead. Misery. And then you have people that are taking a different tax, a less militaristic tax. You've had people like the German philosopher of the Enlightenment age, Immanuel Kant, who called for a federation of states. He even called this idea a league of peace. For those who are familiar with the history, that sounds like something that happened after World War I, a league of nations. But we remember that this league of nations was created to stop war. This came out of Kant's idea, by the way, where Kant had this idea that these states will include all the states of the world, all the sovereign nations of the world, and they will be vested with the authority to essentially uh, 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 ensue for peace between warring nations. But what good did that do? We entered into World War II. And then we basically renamed the League of Nations and called it the United Nations. And if you look at your history again, you find that the United Nations has been um, more of an observer than a, a peacekeeping force. We see that in Rwanda, how they failed so terribly when the massacre happened there. The United Nations forces were there, but what peace could they manage? We saw that happen in, in Kosovo. What peace could they manage? So even this idea of, of peace and, and, and that a, a League of Nations will bring about peace has been a failure. And today we see people protest for racial justice and, 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 and equity, racial you know, equality and all these kind of things. I mean, it's good to speak, on, 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 speak against injustice. But if you think that the solution to our problem is by writing a few extra lines to the, to, the, to the code of laws that we have already, if you think that is the solution, then you've gotten it very wrong. We've been writing laws, human rights laws have been written time and time again, but what good does this do? There are still human rights atrocities all across the world today. And so the world comes up with these ideas, some of which are laudable. But what does the Bible have to say? Because we've tried our way. We've tried the militaristic way. We've tried the philosophical way of getting nations to talk about peace. We've tried the legal way. It's all failed. So what recourse do we have? How do we get to peace? It says in verses 13 to 16, But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off has been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And may reconcile us both in God, in one body, both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And this is what we want to get to. We want to kill the hostility. How do we get to this point? Paul describes this in three ways. Three pictures, really. He says, we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We 
talking about both Jews and Gentiles, we are made one by removing the wall of hostility in his flesh. We, both Jews and Gentiles, are both reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Got to be careful I'm not just stand down. But this is, this, is, this is something I want us to capture today. It's talking about the same thing, but he repeats it in three different ways. It says, brought near God by the blood of Messiah. Made one in his flesh. Reconciled to God through the cross. By the blood of Christ in his flesh through the cross. Now the Israelites in, the, in days past offered sacrifices to God. They called their sacrifices Korban. And the word Korban essentially means to draw near. Right? When we think about sacrifice, we think about um, something that costs us something. A sacrifice is something that costs you. Uh, you have to pay a high price or something. Something that is dear to you. Right? That's what we call a sacrifice. But actually, the Hebrew word Korban means draw near. And we see that the priests of old how do they draw near to God? They, they have to sacrifice an animal and they have to put blood on this place and blood on this place and there's blood sloshing around the place before they can draw near to God. There has to be blood. That's the system God gave to them. And so we see that we Gentiles, we are brought near by the blood of Messiah. We draw near to God. That gap between us is, is, is shrunk and we are drawn near to God by the blood of Messiah. And the second way is Paul talks about a, a fusion, a melding of separate and previously hostile group of people. Now, I, I would like us to imagine um, this. If you, can, if you can help me out here, I want everyone to sort of use their imagination as I talk through this bit here, where we have the cross of Jesus Christ in the middle of a field. And you have all the nations of the world all surrounding that cross. But we're all separated from one another, right? The Arabs are separated from the Jews. The Africans are separated from the Europeans. The Latin Americans are separated from the Chinese. We, we're all separated, but we're also surrounding this cross. And there's a gap between us and the cross. And as we draw near, because of the blood has been shed, because of the blood of Messiah has come forth, as we draw near, you have people coming from the, the contingency of the Arabs and the contingencies of the Africans and contingencies of the Europeans and contingencies of the Asians. And we all draw near. As we draw near to the cross, you know what happens? We actually physically start to touch one another. That gap between us starts to shrink as we get closer and closer and closer to the cross. And we get, as we get closer and closer, we get, it gets so difficult to move because now we are so joined together. And as we get closer and closer and closer, and we get into, we confused, bind, one body. And like a, a, a welder that welds two pieces of metal, metal. You're not sure where one body begins and where one, one metal ends and where one metal begins. And this is the picture here. We are made one. As we draw closer to the cross, that gap, the walls of hostility, starts breaking down. We are made one in its flesh. And the third picture here is a picture of a door. We must all be reconciled to God through the cross. There is no other way. There is no other option. There is no shortcut. There is no window, open window on the second floor that we can come to. There is no back door. It is through the cross. 
Jesus said in John 14, 16, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we are brought near to God by the blood of Messiah. We are made one in his flesh. We are reconciled to God through the cross. But why the cross? Christians talk a lot about the cross. And different people see the cross for, uh, as representing different things. Some people see it as a way that the, the oppressed people have power over the oppressors. Some people see it as a, as a sign of the humility of Christ. Now, um, if you've been following the news this week, you will see that um, there was a, a, a footballer, a Premier League footballer, I believe, who um, kicked this cat. And uh, first I heard about it was um, someone sat here today who told me about um, this, this footballer who kicked this cat. And I thought, that's odd. Why would you kick your cat? But um, I still seen pictures about it, of, of, of these things. And, and you just think, wow, that, that's, that's incredibly cruel. And so now people are saying something must be done about it. This club has to do something about it. The police have to be brought in about this. Justice for the cat. Right? And there's something right about that. What is the point of abusing a poor, the poor animal? We all think, yeah, it's fair. Justice must be done for the cat. But what about God's justice? Haven't we all kicked against God? Haven't we all insulted him? Haven't we all lunged at him? As Tim said earlier today, we punched at God, rebelling against him, saying to him, I want to be king in his own kingdom. This is his universe. You see, if we made this universe, if we created this universe, then God has no right over us because this will be our own universe. But it is own, it is, this is his home. It says in the scriptures that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all who dwell in it. We are his own. We are owned by him. The oxygen that we, you breathe right now comes from him. The food you eat comes from him. The, the blessings you have comes from him. And we have the goal to rebel against him. If the cat's going to get justice, God certainly deserves his justice. should make us worried, really. It really should. Because there is nobody in here that hasn't rebelled against God. Nobody. Nobody in here hasn't rebelled against God. And it says in scriptures that the wages of sin is death. But why? Why, why does it have to be death? Because God is the source of life. If you say, I want to separate from the source of life, then what are you asking for? You're asking for death. He is the source of life. That's why the wages of sin is death. And so when we choose rebellion against God, we're really choosing death. But last week we read something that was so beautiful. And that's why we are all gathered together. It says that but God rich in mercies. Think about a big vat of water. The size of a universe. Overflowing with mercies. Just overflowing that's what it means by God is rich in mercy. It's not trickling out. It's rushing and overflowing. And we see, we see that God looks at these people who have all sinned against him, who have all kicked against him. But he's rich in mercy. And that's why he put his son on the cross to take our sins. Christ said that I and the Father are one. If you sin me, you sin the Father. 
Christ is described in the scriptures as being the image of the Father, the very physical projection of the Father. Christ is no ordinary man. He's the beloved and the begotten Son of God. And God takes his very own image, his, his very own likeness, and he puts him on the cross instead of us. That death that we deserve, because we've all agreed we deserve justice. That justice that we deserve was placed on Christ. This is the power of the cross. This is why nobody can come to God any other way but through the cross. Now, whether you are of Indian descent or of Arab descent or of uh, uh, Hispanic, Latin American descent or Chinese descent, Jesus Christ took on your punishment. And what does that mean for us? It means if you are here today and you've come to Christ and you are here today because of Christ brought you in, it means that the person sat to the left of you and the person sat to the right of you are your blood brothers and sisters. They are your blood brothers and sisters. That's what it means when it says that we, we are Christians. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That means that that person has a deeper connection and a deeper bond with you than your own biological family if they are not in Christ. Because your family, you know your family for 70, 80, 90, 100 years, depending on how good you are at living long. <laughs> but your, your new brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to know them for the rest of eternity. So get used to it. You're, you're looking at that guy and saying, well, we don't, we don't quite, you know, he doesn't quite like the music that I like. Hey, you're going to be living together for all eternity. You're going to be bunking together for all eternity. This is what it means. It's a new family that is, that is forged here in the flesh of Christ. But not just this. We now have a new promise. And what does that promise says? It says in, in verses 18, and I'll just read very quickly. It says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, I'll read very quickly. It says, and I will give you a new heart. And the new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise that we've been waiting for. The promise, Holy Spirit. The, 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 the disciples were devastated when Jesus Christ says, I am going to the Father. And he says, don't worry. I'm going to give you the comforter. He will lead you in all truths. The Holy Spirit is said to be the guarantee of our salvation, the seal that we are going to be forever with him. That's who Christ is deposited in everyone who have come through the cross. Isn't it amazing? And you have the warring factions of the world all represented in this room. Last week I saw um, when I was with the youth group, and I looked at everybody in the room, and I looked, wow, we have everybody from every continent except for Antarctica. So we've got to do something about those penguins. <laughs> but everybody is represented in this room. And it says in verses 19, 
It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are now citizens of the household of God. And so we started first, how? We were people that had no king, we were people that had no citizenship, and we were people that had no promise. And what do we have now? Now we have the Messiah. Now we have a king. Now we have citizenship. Now we are members of the household of God. Blood brothers and sisters. And we have the promise, the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Now we're complete. And this is why when we come together, this isn't an ordinary um, gathering. This isn't something that we do because we don't have a, a better idea of how to spend our Sunday morning. We do this because we are family. We do this because we are eternal family. And what does that mean for us? It means we have to pursue each other. It's not enough that we come on a Sunday morning and say, hello, God bless. We need to get in each other's lives. I already said before, we're going to be getting used to each other for the rest of eternity. So we might as well get started now. It means... Get to know someone today. We've all moved into this building. There's a lot of new faces. I, I spoke to a gentleman that has been coming a, a few times um, for the past three years. And it's like, I haven't seen you before. Well, there's an opportunity. Now I have to invite him over to my house. Now I have to get into his life. He has to get into my life. This is what it means for us. There's something deeper here. It's not surface level. But Tommy, we are British. We like to... We like to, you know, kind of go our own way and, you know, do things and say hello from distance. Remember, you are not members so much of the British household, but you're members of the household of God. The household of God will last forever. Britishness, Nigerianness, whatever other ness you can come up with will last for a while and it will come to an end. But the household of God must last forever. And this is the picture that God is, 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 is doing through the church. As the world is fighting today, we, we know there are masses of tens of thousands of men on either side of the Ukraine border. We know war is, is you know, war is on the lips of everybody. As the world is warring against itself and against God, what do we do? We show God's light. We are members. Christ says, by the love you show for one another, they will know that you're my disciples. This is what this means. I can't, if Christ thought it was worthwhile to die for you, right? Then who am I to say, I can't love you? Because you come from a different ethnic group or because you like a different music or because you talk funny? No. If Christ thought it was worthwhile to die for you, then I love you. Because he thought it was worthwhile to die for me. And I know what I'm like. So don't be fooled by the philosophies of this world. For over 6,000 years, they have been nothing but failure. Nothing but failure. And I say this, I say this because I, I spend a lot of time, I read history, and I see people coming up with new ideas. It's all a failure. The answer is in Christ. Amen. Through the blood of Christ, in his flesh, through the cross. That's the answer. 
And so as the musicians prepare to come back up here again, I'm just going to read a quote from St. Augustine. And I want to talk to people specifically in this place who, as I'm talking, you do not know peace. You are at war with God. You are at war with yourself. You are at war even right now with family members. It could be a divorce you're going through. There is war going on in your life. St. Augustine was a man who lived about a thousand years ago in, in North Africa. He described himself as someone who was inwardly consumed and confused. And he says, he writes, You, O oh God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And God wants to reconcile us back to him. Even here, we know Christ is here because it didn't end on the cross. Christ was raised on the third day. And he says, wherever two or more are gathered, I am there with them. And we know Christ is here with us, and he wants to reconcile us back to him. And this means if you are here, and you want to know the peace of God, you want to know an end to the hostilities in your life, Christ says, come to me. There are going to be people on my right-hand side who are going to be serving us and praying for us. And if you want someone to pray for you, don't leave this place today. And so, Father, I thank you because you are the God of peace. And the title of Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. In you, we find the peace that we are looking for. And so, Father, we just pray, O oh Lord, today that you would make us a people of peace. Peace amongst each other, knowing what you have done on the cross for us. And I pray for those who are here who do not know your peace that they will come to your cross, Lord. And you gave that wonderful promise, Lord. You said, all will come to me. I will not cast away. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you will give your peace, Lord, to those who seek it in this room, Father. We thank you because you hear us always, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.